time to cross to our Wellington studio and we're going to be talking about the media and what's been going on this week and it's Jeremy Rose's turn tonight. Kia ora, Jeremy. Kia ora, Karen. We've been learning all about London and what's going on tonight and I know that you'll be talking about Boris Johnson as well. Oh, just because he's got a kind of journalistic background and I thought it's unusual. I, I was trying to think whether New Zealand's ever had a Prime Minister that was a journalist, and I went looking, and Julius Vogel and um, John Balance, but they were both in the 19th century, so we have had uh, journalists as, as Prime Ministers, but yes, that's an I've unusual some, thing. I've read some stuff by Julius Vogel, so um, who did he, did he just send stuff back to the mother country, did he? No, he, he, I'm pretty sure he set up his own newspaper, he also wrote that book, was it something around the 2000, a kind of futuristic um, sci-fi oh, book. Right. Yes, he did. But but if we get back to Boris, I mean, he, he went straight from Oxford to become a trainee journalist at The Times. And he must have been writing a story that he found a bit boring because he made up a quote and attributed it to his godfather, an, an academic there, um, and got found out and was promptly sacked. Uh, didn't didn't end his journalistic career. The Daily Telegraph picked him up and um, sent him at the very young age of 25 to Brussels. And that's probably where most of us first heard of him. He he was a kind of expert in those, you know, um, well, fake news, really. You know, stories about the European Union and how it wouldn't allow a bent banana or a one-size-fits-all condom. So you know, he, what did you say? A one size, one size fits, fits all. all. He, he, he claimed that he claimed that the bureaucrats were going to insist that there could only be one size condom. But it was you know, it was, it was just it was fake news. Who was he writing for? Did you for, say for the Telegraph? For the Telegraph. Um, and and then he went back and became assistant editor of the Telegraph, I think, and a columnist for the Spectator, where he was kind of notorious for wo- using words like piccaninny and puffing coolies. Um, so you know. F- Thoroughly unpleasant, really. Uh, but even more unpleasant than that, than that was he was caught on tape um, helping a convicted fraudster or saying he would help him have another journalist beaten up. So, um, yeah, not a particularly savoury record in journalism. Toby Manhart wrote quite an entertaining piece on the spin-off, 12 eye-watering facts about the new British Prime Minister. Um, And in it, he quoted his former boss from The Telegraph, actually, Sir Max Hastings, uh, who who wrote, If the day ever comes that Boris Johnson becomes tenant of Downing Street, I shall be among those packing my bags for a new life in Buenos Aires or such like, because it means that Britain has abandoned its last pretensions to be a serious country. So as far as I know, we we don't know whether Sir Max has uh, booked his tickets yet, but it sounds like he's going to be. Um, Great quote. Yeah, I thought so. Um, so, so, and it hasn't it hasn't done him any harm, though, has it? All of his history, because that must be well known by the British public. Well known. It may have even done him some good. Eh? There's that kind <laughs> yes. of, um, you know, not politically correct. Uh, I don't know. It must appeal to some people. Um, certainly appealed to the members of the Conservative Party who have appointed him leader, and now he's prime minister. And you know, one of the toughest challenges, obviously, which he's probably partly responsible for, but um, will be the Brexit um, negotiations and and how they how they navigate that. 
And I've actually just stopped watching because um, it only went up now a couple of hours ago. The Great Hat, which is a Netflix documentary, uh, which claims that that uh, Cambridge Analytica, which you'll be familiar with, and Facebook had far more to do with the success of the um, Leave vote than the likes of Boris Johnson. But let's hear a clip from one of the characters in that documentary. People don't want to admit that propaganda works because to admit it means confronting our own susceptibilities, horrific lack of privacy, and hopeless dependency on tech platforms ruining our democracies on various attack surfaces. So that was David Carroll, who's a American media academic. He took a case in the British courts um, against Cambridge Analytica to try and get the data they kept on them because they had 5,000 bits of data apparently on all Americans which were then used to target um, Facebook advertising during the Trump campaign. Um, And he was determined to try and get that and went through it. And the documentary focuses quite heavily on him. you know, he mentions the the kind of threat to democracy. The it it really is. Uh, you know, I'd, I'd encourage people who have Netflix to to have a look at it. It's it's a powerful documentary. There's a couple of other people who get followed kind of quite closely in it. Um, one is Brittany Kaiser, uh, a character who was a intern for Obama and then gets employed by Cambridge Analytica, so kind of jumps ship, I suppose, um, and then becomes a whistleblower. And so, yeah, definitely kind of interesting. I, I must admit I felt a little bit uneasy about her. I don't know whether I trust her. And then there's the Observer journalist Carol Cadwalder, I think, um, award-winning journalist, and she warns very strongly that she thinks that the situation we're in is very dangerous and that democracy really is under threat. So a lot of it isn't new. Some, you know, I've heard some of the stories. There's a story about Trinidad and Tobago where Cambridge Analytica uses, decides that the way to help the party that they're supporting is to encourage apathy, to actually encourage people not to vote. And again, they use the types of information they've got to create these viral campaigns to make not voting cool. So fairly sophisticated and clever stuff. What we don't know... Yeah, I how spo- do you do that? Well, they, do, I know how, how they do it in terms of targeting social media, how Cambridge Analytica did that, but I wonder what messages they used yeah, in it was relation a kind to of, make voting... They tried cool. to make it seem cool, and so they... I mean, in, in fact, it wasn't all uh, social media. They had graffiti and things appearing to, to, to create this campaign of kind of, yeah, cool disillusionment, I suppose. You know, they're all the same type thing. Uh, very, very interesting. And they've been active all over in developing countries. Um, of course, they've gone bankrupt since and um, did plead guilty to not having supplied the information to the academic, David Carroll. Um, but like I say, yeah, it's it's on Netflix. And it, it made me think, you know, one of the things about the media nowadays is that we, it feels to me that we don't have nearly as much shared experience as we used to. You know, when, when we were young, you'd go to school and you all would have watched the same thing. 
Um, and one of the reasons I wanted to watch this is I just saw articles about it everywhere, you know, in The Guardian, I think the New Zealand Herald had an article. And it occurred to me that there's a kind of international shared experience now, probably nowhere near as many as of us who, you know, when I go to work tomorrow, there won't be many people who have watched it. But but there's a sense of, of a whole community of people starting to watch things together, which I find kind of quite interesting. Yes, and with this documentary talking about the referendum, uh, there's just a suggestion that Cambridge Analytica dictated the result. Well, they always denied it, but the point that, but it seems obvious they were involved, and Steve Bannon is an investor in things. It's, so there's a lot of interesting information. I've probably you know glossed over it and forgotten a lot of it. But the point that they make is it's often quite small numbers. So with the you know, with the Trump campaign, as we know, Hillary Clinton actually got more votes. But they point out in the documentary that Trump took out 5.9 million Facebook votes as opposed to something like 66,000 that were taken out by Hillary Clinton. And they were very targeted. And we have, drawing the line between what is acceptable campaigning and what is unacceptable use of our personal data. I mean, the way that Cambridge Analytica gathered that stuff, you probably remember, it's those Facebook, if you're on it, used to be full of those horrible personality quizzes. I never understood why people took them. Um, And they would say, you're this type of personality or that type of personality. And that was the data mining that was taking place to actually find these trigger points, which they then... You know, I mean, part of me thinks that people like Cambridge Analytica actually exaggerate how effective they are because obviously that's their business. Um, But it is scary, the amount they know. So big tech, a major threat or can be a major threat to democracy. But you're also keen to talk about some recent examples of journalists accessing the private information of politicians in the name of democracy. But you want to start with a bit of a track, I believe? Yeah, let's, let's hear this one. Little bit of late night listening down there in the studio. <laughs> yeah, so that I've actually I've I've lost the Spanish name. I did have it. It's cuchillo. Anyway, it's about it's sharpening knives, and they say it's become the anthem of these protests in Puerto Rico, which are just huge. I mean, I think the last one had five hundred thousand people. Was as I say it, it seems it can't be true because I think the population is only about three point one million, um, and there's. This comes after the Centre for Investigative Journalism in Puerto Rico released 889 pages of messages from um, their governor, Ricardo Rosseo, and various government officials and other colleagues. Um, And they were all on this app called Telegram. I don't know whether you're familiar with it. I think it came out of Russian originally, but it's one of these uh, end-to-end encryption apps. And so the idea is that when you're talking on it, you're completely safe. And they also have, you know, functions. So anything, they automatically disappear if you set them. Um, So I wonder whether the politicians start to feel extremely safe. Anyway, the, the... 
messages are just dynamite. I mean, they're incredibly nasty. They're homophobic. They're misogynistic. And I think he also insults many of his own members of his own party, which might explain why the whole country seems to be outraged. And then he is, you know, some very ghastly things about the people who died in the hurricane and how maybe, you know, they should be left to be eaten by the crows and things. So investigative journalism somehow gets hold of it. There's a very good interview with the head of the investigative journalism um, centre on Democracy Now! And if you go to the uh, Media Watch webpage, I'll put links to that. So you can kind of find out some background on that. And what it reminded me of, though, was that in Brazil, the Intercept, they're up to part six now of their big investigation into corruption in the Brazilian system. And that has um, was also a telegram uh, leak. So somehow um, it just seemed, you know, I find it curious that this that people are using an app to remain secret. And in both cases, they've actually been exposed by, by, the, um, by the use of this app. And, uh, yeah, I, I don't know what, what that tells us, really. But um, beware. Be, beware. Glenn Greenwald uh, and his husband, David Miranda, uh, Glenn Greenwald is the editor of The Intercept, and his husband's a congressman with the Socialist and Liberty Party in the parliament there. Now, they've taken out, um, they've, they've, they've got, have to be under incredible security because of the um, death threats which are coming their way. Um, so there's a price to be paid for, for being a good investigative journalist. Um, but that actually, there's, a, there's just a little BBC documentary which, um, which I noticed about a Maltese journalist called Daphne Karuna Galicia, and we can listen to a clip from that now. Daphne Caruana Galicia was Malta's top investigative reporter. She dedicated her life to holding power to account, investigating allegations of organised crime, cronyism and corruption on this tiny island state. On the afternoon of the 16th of October 2017, she was driving to the bank to regain control of her account, which had been frozen at the request of a government minister. Mum. Daphne was killed when a bomb exploded under her car. Yeah, so uh, you, you may remember that case, but anyway, they've, they've, the BBC has put it out. There's a link again to that. They've, they've created this five-part uh, doco-drama. It, they're 14 minutes long each, and it takes you into the life of an investigative journalist who really was quite phenomenal and paid the ultimate price for her craft. Um, yeah, worth worth a listen. Um, Where do we source that again? That's, it's on the BBC, but if yes. you go again to the uh, Media Watch page, yes. um, I've put a link to it on that, so so you can Fantastic. you can have a link to that. And then just the last thing I thought we could talk about quickly is was just a, a couple of stories which were, which were kind of complementary this week. One was this morning on Morning Report, uh, Phil Pennington, the Radio New Zealand journalist, did a big investigation into the amount of money being spent and the increase in government budgets for comms. Um, I've actually just misplaced my figures on that, but they they are quite phenomenal. There's been this um, 
Oh, no, here they are, yes. So there's been a 60% increase in the um, number of con staff in government departments since 2013. Salaries have gone up by about 45% when wage inflation over the same time has gone up by only 14%. And then over on the spin-off, Duncan Grieve, the um, executive editor there, who often you know, takes quite an interest in the media, and he put out a – he just had this interesting chart which looked at – we've just come up to the 30th anniversary of New Zealand On Air, which was brought in by Richard Prebor, a kind of um, a more market approach to, the, to spending public money on media. And so he looked at the amount that – he found an interesting um, table which showed that the amount that was being spent in 1990 um, – the economy since 1990 has grown by 281%. Um, the funding for New Zealand on air has grown by 61%. So we've seen this in comms, we're seeing this massive increase in spending, and in public media and Radio New Zealand and various other forms of public media, we've stagnated and gone backwards um, and I just yeah, again there's links to both of those stories on, on the website Very good Jeremy well thank you very much and we'll catch up with you for another Midweek Media Watch in a couple of weeks Thanks very much. Okay good night Okay, night. It's Jeremy Rose in our Wellington studio